0: All right, so on this Tuesday, this Halloween Tuesday, let us pray. (laughs) Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be gathered here today. There is is a lot to be anxious about in this world right now, but help us to set that aside and come here to this fellowship that you have called us to. This time apart from the day-to-day to to come together and to study your scripture, to learn, to share this in fellowship, to make new acquaintances and friends and we are grateful, grateful that you have called us to this. It's, it's a wonderful thing. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So, here is where we are. We, have, we are at 2 Samuel chapter 21 the remaining chapters in 2 Samuel are all appendices. They are not in the narrative flow of David's life. So where we left David was we left David restored to his throne, chastened I'm sure by the experience. His son Absalom is dead. Um, And we won't pick up the story of David until we finish the appendices. And after which we will go to the book of Kings and do like the first two chapters and a bit. Is the remainder of the story of David's life. Because the book of Kings opens with the stories of David's death. And his handing off the throne to his son Solomon. But that lies ahead, so we've got these chapters, and chapter 20 is a story, but it goes back in time. So, and exactly where, how far back, we're not sure. It's a story that involves a people called the Gibeonites. I'll show you where Gibeon is on the map that we've used the past couple of weeks. So, and I'm going to try not to blind anybody. Here's Gibeon right there, way down there at the bottom, just north of Jerusalem. A little bit southeast of there is the place called Gibeah, that is the hometown of Saul. And both of them play um, a role here. And to understand the Gibeonite story, we really have to go back further in time because they have a special the Gibeonites have a special status in in Israel. So, what I'd like to do is to go back and begin today at the ninth chapter of the book of Joshua. Joshua, yes. Joshua tells the story of the conquest, such as it is, of the Promised Land. Now, there are a couple of things to know about this conquest. Joshua is the earthly commander, the one who leads them in, and... He and Caleb are two Israelite spies who wanted to go into the Promised Land 40 years earlier, but they were outvoted. Okay? And so now Joshua is going to lead the people of Israel, but the real commander, the real leader is whom? God. And when, in the book of Joshua, they do as God says and do as God instructs them, they do well. When they don't, they don't do well. Pretty straightforward. Now this conquest is, it, it's not like they go in and occupy the entire land. They, they end up living amongst other peoples and pagan peoples <coughs> and so forth. I heard a, a teacher once who said ah, it's kind of like saying that you, know, you, you, you conquered the US because you took New York, Chicago, and LA. It's that kind of idea. So there's still a lot of other peoples living in the promised land, even at the end of Joshua, at the time of the book of Judges, and even forward from there. And those crop up in the story. The people like the Hivites and other folks that you encounter in the narrative. Okay, But... There's one story in the book of Joshua that involves the Gibeonites. So if you have found your way to Joshua 9, that's where we're going to begin. Okay, so any questions before I start? Yes. Well, we may be boiling up, but there's not a darn thing I can do about it. (laughs) There's no thermostat down here. This isn't usually the problem we have, is it? Usually people are freezing down here. So I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) I I don't think realistically we're going to get anything done about it. So if you need to take off your jackets or something, feel free. But be careful about how much you take off, please. (laughs) Joshua chapter 9 Verse 1, is everything working? Everything going? Like I said, I'm a little bit scattered. Now when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, the kings in the hill country, in the western foothills, and along the entire coast of the Mediterranean Sea, as far as the Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. So these are all the people who are occupying this land really west of the Jordan River because the israelites cross over the jordan river and enter into what you and i know as the promised land into israel verse 7 however when the people of gibeon heard what joshua had done to jericho and to ai they he had conquered both they resorted to a ruse a ruse i love that they went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy." So if you saw them, what would you think? Poor, poor, poor in bad shape. Not a threat to anybody. Right? Then they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and to the Israelites, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. The Israelites said to the Hivites, which, by which he means this, the writer means these people, but perhaps you live near us, so how can we make a treaty with you? I'm, I'm not going to make a treaty with my next door neighbor. You know, that's not what this conquest is about. And so they said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua asked, who are you and where do you come from? And they answered, your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan. Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. And our elders and all those livings in our country said, Take provisions for your journey, go and meet them, and say to them, We are your servants, make a treaty with us." Okay, so the ruse doesn't seem to be about showing up necessarily poor as looking like they had come a long, long way. Okay? This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you. But now, see how dry and moldy it is. And these wineskins that we filled, well, they were new. But see how cracked they are. And our clothes and sandals are worn out by the very long journey. Obviously wanting Joshua to believe what? That they had come from a long way away so they didn't pose any threat to the Israelites. Well, verse 14, the Israelites sampled their provisions. Okay, I guess they were, hopefully they weren't enjoying them. They were just making sure they were really dry and moldy. But notice the last half of this sentence. They did not inquire of the Lord. Book of Joshua. When you inquire of the Lord, you're successful. When you don't, you're not. And here we are explicitly told that they did not inquire of the Lord about this. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. So now they've taken an oath before God with these people. Joshua and the Israelites were utterly tricked. Because Gibeon is actually right there. Right there, right in the heart of all of this. Now, three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbors living near them. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. So the Israelites set out and on the third day came to their cities, Gibeon, Kephirah, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the Israelites did not attack them, because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by Yahweh, the God of Israel." The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders. Right? Of course they did. You idiots, you were taken in by these people. What were you thinking? Why did you take such an oath? Now we're stuck, we can't do anything. But all the leaders answered, We have given them our oath by Yahweh, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. This is what we will do to them. We will let them live so that God's wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath, we swore to them. Let them live but let them be woodcutters and water carriers in the service of the whole assembly. We're not going to kill them, but we're going to make them our servants, our slaves, as it were. So the leader's promise to them was kept. Then Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said, Why did you deceive us by saying we live a long way from you? Well, actually, you live near us. You are now under a curse. You will never be released, never, 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 big word, right? You will never be released from service as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. And they answered, Joshua, your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all its inhabitants from before you. So we feared for our lives because of you and that is why we did this. We are now in your hands. Do to us do to us whatever seems good and right to you. So Joshua saved them from the Israelites, and they did not kill them. That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the assembly to provide for the needs of the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose. And that is what they are to this day. This day meaning when this is written. Okay? So that's who the Gibeonites are. Their ruse was successful. They weren't among the cities that were conquered by the Israelites, but they'd end up generation after generation serving Israel and Israel's God. Okay? So, any questions about that before we go back to this appendix, the story of David that comes from an earlier time in David's kingship than where we left it last week? So, even though they didn't consult with God or pray about this, or, it still worked out well for them. God made it work out well for them. So, despite the fact that Batty's commenting that despite the fact that Joshua and the other leaders of Israel did not inquire of God, it still worked out they got servants and slaves. And I don't know what God would have said if they had inquired of God, but they did get tricked. So the idea I think behind the not inquiring of God is that they had inquired of God, they at least wouldn't have gotten tricked. But you're right in that from the Gibeonite perspective, it's just as well they didn't inquire of God because they stayed alive, right? But now they're basically servants of the Israelites. And remember remember, at this time Jerusalem is not an Israelite city. It belongs to the Jebusites. David will conquer Jerusalem, right? We, we, we've been there two months ago. So, Anything else? All right. So, chapter 21 in 2 Samuel. Now, do you remember Shammai? See, all these pieces, you got to... If you, you want to get into the story, you've got to tie the pieces together. So, Shammai is the guy who, when David was leaving, was coming out cursing him, cursing him, cursing him, picking up stones, throwing them at David and his men and all this. And some of them wanted to go and you know, remove Shammai's head. And on the way back, after David's army had prevailed, Shammai comes out very obsequious, very like, yes, whatever I can do for you, King David, whatever I can do for you, whatever I can do for you. But when David is leaving, Shemai comes out and he accuses David of blood libel, of carrying with him blood guilt in, with regard to Saul's household. Now blood guilt is blood libel is being responsible for somebody's blood being on your hands. And in and in this case, the accusation seems to have been from Shemai that David did some things to kill or slaughter members of Saul's household after Saul and Jonathan died. Did we see? It? Did we ever see that? No, we didn't. We, there's nothing here to indicate that's the truth. In fact, the only thing we have is the story of Mephibosheth who was one of Jonathan's sons who David takes in and treats like a member of the family and puts you know at his table every day and all that sort of thing. So, that's all background <laughs> for chapter 21, the first story here. During the reign of David, 21 during the reign of David there was a famine for three successive years. So we are back in time somewhere in the history of David's kingship. Remember, he's king, including his time as the king of Judah for 40 years. So somewhere in all of that, there was a famine that lasted three years. Now famines are not unusual here because... But they're dangerous because it's just a very dry, arid place. Famine is what drove... um, Jacob's family to Egypt remember the coat of many technical the coat of many colors the Technicolor dream coat right Joseph um, Joseph is down there and has rose to great prominence and when Jacob's family comes they are able to be saved from the famine up in Canaan because there's so much food in Egypt Patty's worried I'm going to send this water flying. As well she should because I have done that at least once. We'll put it over there. How's that? And I'll put this over here. Okay. During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord. Sought the face of Yahweh, which means to, he went to inquire of God went to inquire of life, sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, it is on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. So David asks God and God tells him that this famine is because of something that Saul did to the Gibeonites. Verse 2. The king summoned the gibeonites and he spoke to them. Now the gibeonites were not a part of Israel, okay? Which we learned in Joshua 9, but were survivors of the Amorites. That's what the Amorites were one of the historical enemies of Israel. The Israelites had sworn to spare them, Joshua 9. But Saul in his zeal for Israel and Judah had tried to annihilate them. So for Saul, this is another example of the mistake Saul made several times. There isn't any reason for him to go against the oath that the leaders of Israel had made to God. It's an oath to God that the leaders of Israel had made. But he does go against that oath and decides that he knows better that he should go ahead and annihilate, try to annihilate, the Gibeonites. So David asked the Gibeonites, well, what shall I do for you? Because this is now much later, something, Saul's Saul's dead. What shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? So what is the language the Lord's, Lord's inheritance refer to? the people of Israel, the Israelites. They are the Lord's inheritance. And, and he's saying, look, I tell me what I need to do to make up to you, to make atonement, for, so that you will bless the people of Israel, the Lord's inheritance, that we will basically what? Put things right. Put things back together. I mean, he knows that he didn't do it, but Saul did it, and it and, and it exists. So it matters less who, in a way, matters less who did it than the fact that they seem to have been deeply wronged, and David wants to put it right. That's that's the that's the short sort of it. Okay. Thoughts. Questions? Reflections? <laughs> Scott, is there a reference for Saul uh, taking care of the Gideonites in Samuel i I'm sorry, could you say that again? I, my it, this Some kind of air's on over here. In 1 Samuel, is, uh, is there something that says that Saul took care of the Gibeonites? Nope. So this is the first time you're hearing about this? As far as I know, okay. yep, pretty much. Okay. Pretty sure about that. Now, nope, this is just you know there are. Think about it. I mean, I know the Book of Samuel was a long book, but just think about the decades it covers, and all of the things that would have happened in those decades. And so now we're getting this little story set in an earlier time, right? Why this story? That's a good question. Why this story? Why, was this, why is this story appended to David's story here in the book of Samuel, basically? It's basically appended to the story of David. Maybe we'll get a clue to that coming up. Maybe we won't. The Gibeonites answered David and they said, We have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family. Nor do we have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. Because there is Saul's household, right? So, which at one point becomes uh, Mephibosheth's household and state. But again, we don't have enough clues here to know when this is happening. It could have been very soon after Saul's death that the Gibeonites came to see David. So David says... Well, okay, so tell me, what do you want me to do for you? And they answered the king, As for the man who destroyed us and plotted against us, so that we have been decimated and have no place anywhere in Israel, let seven of his male descendants be given to us. These would be sons or grandsons in the house of Saul. That's what they're talking about. To be killed and their bodies exposed, that means this is the ultimate degradation, their bodies exposed for all to see, is what it means. Before Yahweh at Gibeah of Saul. Yahweh's chosen one, because Yahweh chose Saul. So what they're asking what are they asking for? What, seven male descendants, seven male sons, grandsons of Saul, wherever the time is here. And they want to kill them, and they want to leave their bodies exposed for all to see in Saul's hometown. That's Gibeah. That's Saul's hometown. Wow. Seems kind of like a big ask. But we don't know, we're not given much detail about what Saul actually did to the Gibeonites. I suspect it was terrible. And terrible creates terrible, doesn't it? So the king said, I will give them to you. The king spared Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath before Yahweh between David and Jonathan, son of Saul. But the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Ai's daughter, Rizpah, whom she had born to Saul, together with the five sons of Saul's daughter, Mirab, whom she had born to Adriel, son of Bar- Barzillai the Mahalothite. Yeah, you try that. Okay, so, yeah, there's two people named Mephibosheth. How could that be? Anyway, okay. He handed them over to the Gibeonites who killed them and exposed their bodies on a hill before Yahweh. All seven of them fell together. They were put to death during the first days of the harvest just as the barley harvest was beginning. You know, I've taught this stuff for a long time and you know, I've, I haven't read this particular passage in a long time, but You know, I, I would sometimes in the past say foolish things about this coming from the world of Conan the Barbarian where, where such barbaric things and attitudes would, would happen. And I discover that now in 2020, 20, 2023, we live in the time of Conan the Barbarian where barbaric acts by the score or paraded across TV sets and social media and it just brings you to what? Truth. That, That there is something deeply, deeply, deeply wrong with us, I will say humanity, that we can't fix a darkness that resides in the human heart and when embraced and allowed to flourish, that darkness becomes a barbarism and an evil that we can hardly, hardly even imagine and from which we must be rescued. The most that we can do is try to constrain it, but we can't eradicate it. That much from history is clear and here history's made right here in October of 2023 if we if we thought oh we've gone past that now we know well we we haven't and um, it's 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 very it's very hard because I read these stories and and it's very easy to like to come to them or go to the stories in Joshua and condemn these people and then you realize you know, right, like, like right now, I, I grew up, I was born in 1950. Yes, I am that old. Some of you are older. <laughs> <laughs> and proud of it. And so when I was a little boy, growing up, you know, beginning to learn things about the world, you know, World War II was not in the distant past. I mean, I would, be, I would be 15 years old before there was, no, 17 years old, nearly graduating high school, before there was as much distance between World War II and myself as there is between 9-11 and today. And I would read about the, the pogroms in Poland and stuff by the Nazis, running down through the streets, chasing, chasing Jews, trying to find Jews to kill and then I see the tape coming out of that Russian airport and I'm just like, I'm just like stunned. I hardly know what to make of it. And then I look at, 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 at people in our own country who were just so ignorant or filled with hatred that they can't see, they can't see the barbarism for what it is. And it just it, it puts me where I am certainly probably not going to use that Conan the Barbarian reference anymore. Which some of you will applaud because I'm sure I overused it many years because we see, that, we see that it's here just as well. And from it all, what do we need? We need a rescuer. Who, I- <coughs> who is that rescuer? That rescuer is Jesus, of course, you see? You know, we we can put lots of churchy words around Jesus and around salvation and justification and sanctification and all these other things. And I love to talk about that stuff, don't get me wrong. In fact, don't get me started. But (laughs) we need a rescuer. Humanity has to be rescued from what? Essentially ourselves. We have to be rescued from ourselves. Because we have demonstrated the large, you know, human, if you view humanity as a team sport we have to be rescued from ourselves. And if you think, let's say you make the mistake of thinking well all that can only happen over there, you know, in the East. Just turn your TVs and see what's happening in the, in the States here. See what people are calling for. I saw a tape from Sydney, Australia of all places in front of the beautiful Sydney Opera House, like two days after October 7th, with the crowd shouting, F the Jews, gas the Jews, gas the Jews, F the Jews. <sighs> I don't, I don't, wouldn't pretend to know where it comes from. All I know is it exists, and you're a fool if you deny it. You're a fool if you deny it. So... God, this is Yeah, it is, it is. The crowd's running through that Russian airport, trying to hunt down Jews to kill. That's 1938, Kristallnacht and the rest of it, right? So it is, you know, it's easy to say, well, that's 80 years in the past, and it, we've kind of outgrown that, and mm, mm, No, 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 sir. How about the students at um, Cooper Union? The Jewish students that had to hide locked behind doors so they w- couldn't be found because they feared for their lives. Look at what's happening happened at Cornell this week. How, and you're going like, how could it be? Well, here we go. You know, it's, it's we have more in common with these folks than we would like to admit, in my opinion. Anyway, that's enough of my rant. Any questions, thoughts, Pat? Look at Rwanda, 1991. Rwanda, a million people were killed. Just, just, whoosh, in 30 days. What's, what's so to me is the ages of these people. Their age, on our college are all just kids. Just beautiful, beautiful. You know, so, so you make a good point. You look at a lot of these um, pro Hamas demonstrators and the, so many of them are, are young, they are college age, and I, I think they have, in many cases, they've been failed by their educational system. I, I do think they are, they are ignorant of many things, but there is this darkness in the human heart. It's like we have to have somebody to hate. It's like we have to have somebody to hate. Um, and what you don't want to be is the group, the last group in line. Right, so anyway, anything else? Yes, Mike. Let me ask you, back to this. Uh, if everything had gone uh, status quo, the Gibeonites would have been wiped out, right? If, you mean if Saul had been able to carry out his plan? Right. Or if Joshua had? Well, the Gibeonites uh, dreamed up this ruse, right? Right. They didn't trick David into it. They tricked Joshua into it about 150 years before. Okay, I yeah. Okay. Right. And so David, you know, David trying to put things right with the Gibeonites. See, now we're talking about reparations. Who were Well, he's just trying to he's just trying to put things right. He's just saying, "Look, what do I need to do to put things right between us because of what Saul did?" And it, it might have been a very recent event. He's not talking about what Joshua what happened to that then. That just explains who the Gibeonites are. But Saul was trying to annihilate them, failed. All of that we don't know anything about. How, how much after that they come to see David, we don't know. But David wants to put things right. So let's put a theological point on this. What is God striving to do with this recalcitrant humanity? that we are. To put things right. We are separated from God by our rebellion against God. God's project that begins with Abraham and culminates in Jesus is about putting things right. So years later it's the other edge of the sword. Come up with seven, seven of these other people. Well it's what the Gimeonites asked for. They didn't ask for money. They wanted They wanted seven bodies. Now, they wanted seven sons, not just any seven. It's like they wanted to make sure that the household of Saul would never be a threat to them again. Now, that story was a story often told in the ancient world, the medieval world, (laughs) really up to the present day. Right? Yeah. Yes. 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 Like they were yes. Yes. So There's no reason to, to think, they think they any of that stopped. How, how, how can they not know what? That they were servants already to the Israelites. How could they not know what? Charlotte. Well, how do you know David doesn't know it? Maybe that explains his desire to put it right with these people who have served Israel for the last hundred and fifty years. Phil, isn't it, isn't it that God said that uh, the Gibeonites were? That's why we have famine, is because of what Saul did to the Gibeonites. The famine, the famine, the explanation for the famine is what Saul did to the Gibeonites. Yes. And so David naturally, good point, Phil, wants to put an end to the famine. And the way to put an end to the famine is to put things right with the Gibeonites. He can't fix everything Saul did wrong, but he can try to, as he says, make atonement, atonement for that. Thank you, Phil. Anything else? Okay. All right. So, verse 10. Now Rizpah, she's the mother of a couple of these sons of Saul. Rizpah, daughter of Eah, took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on a rock. From the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from the heavens on the bodies, she did not let the birds touch them by day or the wild animals by night. So the bodies are laid out and exposed, susceptible to birds picking away at them and animals coming up and I guess chewing on them and she is out there keeping all those creatures away. When David was told what Ai's daughter Rizpah, Saul's concubine, had done, that's how she is a, these are Saul's sons because she's one of Saul's second wives, concubines, second wife, one of them, had done he went and took the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the citizens of Jabesh-Gilead. This story we know from the very end of 1 Samuel. They had stolen their bodies from the public square at Beth shan where the Philistines had hung them after they had struck Saul down on Gilboa. Now you remember all that now? The battle with the Philistines, Saul fell, Jonathan fell, the Philistines took their bodies and, and, and put them up on the walls of Gilboa and then the um, men of Jabesh Gilead mounted a raiding party and went and got the bodies and brought them back and that's where they have been for how long I don't know does not does not I don't think there's any none of any time clues. So, David brought the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from there, and the bones of those who had been killed and exposed were all gathered up. They buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the tomb of Saul's father Kish at Zelah in Benjamin, and did everything the king commanded. After that, God answered prayer in behalf of the land which I think we should take as meaning the famine ended to go to Phil's observation. Okay? So when David goes and he collects the bones of Saul and Jonathan and brings them back with these other seven sons of Saul and they are all buried together. It's, an, it's a good moment for David. David is being respectful and honoring of Saul, because now Saul is properly buried. He's not up at Jabesh Gilead anymore. Now he is buried in the tomb of his father next with his bones lying next to the bones of his son Jonathan and these other seven sons. You know, David, we've seen, I, I've been reading a lot about David in the course of these we have been in the book of Samuel you know and and David is is actually a very complex guy right so much so often you see the good in David he does the right thing he inquires of God he his his instinct is to spare a life his instinct is to even honor Saul who had spent years trying to track down and kill David but then David has, his, has darkness in his heart. When he takes Bathsheba, when he rapes Bathsheba, and when he murders her husband Uriah. Setting in motion, as the prophet Nathan said, all the tragedy that would come with Amnon's rape of Tamar, Absalom's murder of Amnon, and the rest of it that we've been looking at in the past couple of months. So it it makes us avoid simplistic views of people and it makes us avoid the idea that that there are those among us well perhaps I myself who lack that darkness in the human heart but it's not true it's true even of David he would repent for his sin but boy when that guy sinned he sinned big time big time and there's just I just think there's, there's a, a wise word of caution in all of that for us in terms of how we are made up and and how we all need to be rescued it's it's like Paul writes in Ephesians he says you know we all fall short of God's glorious standard we all we all are saved by the grace of God it's by God's grace that any of us are put right with God that any of us are rescued it isn't something we're owed not something we're owed God doesn't owe it to us. Why would we think that? It's, because, it's merely because of God's grace, His love, His grace, His mercy, that anyone is, 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 is put right with God. Um, so, again, you come to these stories of people who lived in this case, this is 3,000 years ago. You can still, still see so much of it played out and oh, the very sophisticated, very modern, postmodern 2023. All right, so I'm not going to start another rant. So, anything I would like to talk about here, because that's the story of the Gibeonites, the whole thing. Joshua 9, Second Samuel 21. Okay, well, let's go on because now we're going to go back to the Philistines. Remember the, who the Philistines are. The Philistines are those seafaring people who live out on the coast of the Mediterranean. Like, where, what is? Tel Aviv! (laughs) Caesarea Maritima, if you go to the time of Jesus, right? On the coast. They're the coastal people. The the Israelites are the inland folks. They don't like the sea. They are not a seafaring folk. For them, whenever you come in your Bible and and it talks about the sea, in any metaphorical sense, the sea represents chaos. So when it says like in Revelation, like surra- in, Revelation, in Revelation 4 when the, when the throne of God is set and it says the sea is like glass around the throne, what is it saying? No chaos. All is at peace. All is in order. Right? Okay. 2115. Now, another... I don't have a time marker for you. I don't think there's one here. But there is kind of a surprise. Once again there was a battle between the Philistines and Israel. David went down with his men to fight against the Philistines and he became exhausted can't imagine. And Ishbi Benab, what did they call him on the playground? That's what I want to know. Little Ishbi? Ishbi Benab, one of the descendants of Rapha, whose bronze spearhead weighed 300 shekels, like seven and a half pounds, and who was armed with a new sword, said he would kill David. This Philistine guy, right? But Abishai, oh, there's Abishai. Right? So there's this family, Joab, Abishai, the brother who was killed. Abishai, son of Zariah, came to David's rescue. Joab's family is an integral part of this story. Joab and his brothers, the one who died but then carrying on Joab and Abishai. He struck the Philistine down, Abishai did, and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, saying, Never again will you go out with us to battle, so that the lamp of Israel will not be extinguished. So, consequently, okay, so when I, you know, what, what, my, mine, what do I first jump to? 2 Samuel 11. The army's gone to battle, David is staying home in the, at the palace. And gets bored and sees Bathsheba, but why is he back at the palace? Is he just lazy and uninterested, or have the troops insisted upon it? That the practice now is David does not go into battle because they don't—they fear losing David in the course of the battle. You know, as it's the reason you know commanders don't fight on the front lines, even if they wanted to. Most of them never do. Um, you can have p- images of Teddy Roosevelt leading the charge up the hill on his horse and all that kind of thing, but it's it can be a foolish thing to do because leadership matters. Leaders matter. And David obviously matters. He's the chosen one of Israel, the chosen one of God, who would, had Samuel anoint him to be king. It's like the coaches don't want the quarterbacks to run. I love how you worked at a sports metaphor here, Mike. That's awesome. Yeah, you know. So in the course of time, there was another battle with the Philistines at Gob. At that time, Sibachai, the Hushithite, killed Saf, one of the descendants of Rafa. This, some of this is just like a chronicle, right? It's just like record-keeping just writing stuff down for future generations. Here, I, I know this, I know this, here's this, here's this piece, here's this piece. And they kind of all come together in this book, of, in this writing called Samuel, in this appendix where the story of David is... Well, I can't say it's interrupted because it doesn't pick up until you come to the book of Kings, but it's in this appendix, just like they've just, what? they have just gathering things together. They're going through the files, seeing what else they have to tell you about David and his time. So, all right. In another battle with the Philistines at Gob, Elhanan, son of Zair the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath the Gittite, who had a spear with a shaft like a weaver's rod. In still another battle, which took place at Gath, there was a huge man, this is notable, with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in all. He also was descended from Rapha. When he taunted Israel, Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, David's brother, okay, not the Jonathan son of Saul, killed him. These four were descendants of Rapha and Gath, and they fell at the hands of David and his men. Now, if you look back up, you're going to find the name Goliath there. And it says it is the brother of. Okay? In the book of Chronicles, it doesn't say that. It just says Goliath. And it gives rise to a lot of questions about Goliath and David. Because in the book of Chronicles, David kills Goliath and this is... Um, uh, another guy who kills Goliath. So what does one make of all of that? I don't know. Goliath Jr. Goliath I would simply go with the fact that these are writings from um, thousands of years ago. It's interesting that there is no attempt to reconcile them, really, which might mean the, the, the record in the book of Chronicles, that record keeper isn't aware, but in any event my money would be on the story of David and Goliath. Because it became this enormous tradition in the history of Israel and is told so at length and elegantly. But there you go. There's all of that. None of which is as interesting as this huge man with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. And then the writer insists upon telling you that that adds up up to 24 in all. (laughs) What? It's just interesting. (laughs) It's kind of like when I was a kid, when I was a kid, the Shreveport paper had every day in it a Ripley's Believe It or Not. What was the point? It was just kind of an interesting little thing. So what's this? This is just kind of an interesting little thing. Let me tell you, the guy had six toes and six fingers on each hand, 24 in all. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, You know, it's... (laughs) Um, in In these writings, they're not all cleaned up and put together and you find inconsistencies you find questions you have like why are you telling me this all these things that we don't really know the answer to but they come from a very very long time ago and whoever compiled all of this thought that you Evie would want to know about the 24 fingers and toes so you have it How many years what I have no idea. (laughs) Yes? He played a mean six string guitar. A mean six string guitar. Oh, yes. Yes, in fact, he could play 24 strings if he was really good. Right? (laughs) Okay. All right. So. You know, it's, it's one of the things about Scripture, it's one of the things about the Bible. If you think it's all nice and neat and every bit of it's going to make sense and every bit of it's going to be able to tie it all together, it's all going to be fully consistent from front to back, you're just, you're, you're just going to be disappointed and puzzled a lot, because these are ancient writings and they're preserved. And why we find out about the 24 fingers and toes? I don't have a clue, but here they are in the pages of Scripture. Now let me illustrate one other thing to go to Evie's point. All Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture, Paul says in 2nd Timothy, all scriptures God breathed. And by which he means, Paul being a Pharisee writing in the mid, well, early 60's AD at that point, he means the Old Testament Scriptures. That's all he has. There is no New Testament, there are no, there's no like no New Testament and. Christian Bibles and all that. All, he's a Pharisee, he's a Jew, Paul is, and all he has are the Old Testament, Testament scriptures and he says, all scriptures God breathed and he's use, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and righteousness. Now, is every bit of scripture equally helpful to you? No. How helpful to you is it to know that a guy was born with six fingers and six toes on each hand and foot not terribly okay what unless you play trivia. unless you play trivia <laughs> which you could now win Phil <laughs> if there's a trip Bible trivia card about this this dude so so just keep that in mind it, it it's all it's all inspired by God it's all God breathed, breathed but it's also our spiritual journal humans humans actually wrote all of this, inspired by God. And, um, and so you, you come across Old Testament and New, odd little bits here and there. Most aren't quite as odd as this one about the 24, but there you go. All right. Anything else today? Because I think there's no point in starting. Let's look ahead. Chapter 22 is a song of praise. We'll look at that next week. It is Psalm... Thank you. Psalm 18. I couldn't remember if it was Psalm 18 or 118. It is basically Psalm 18. And again... What? You don't have to tell me that. You can leave me very impressed. It's all right. Yes. So, um, we'll we'll read that. And again, you know, I was reading this yesterday. And I just couldn't help but read it in the context of what is happening in Israel. Yeah. Yeah. So, maybe read it this week. Pray it this week. In that that context. And it's pretty pretty, pretty powerful. So, and then in chapter 23, we have David's last words, which are poetic. And then we have a listing, a chronicle, record keeping about David's mighty warriors. And then the book of Samuel comes to an end. And then we have 1 Kings, which we will go on to for just a little ways in order to carry the story of David to his end. So, I think we'll stop there today. No. Just a reminder that we are not here, Patty and I, we won't have class on November 14th. On November 14th we won't have class. Patty and I will be away. So we will be here next Tuesday, but then we'll have a Tuesday off, and then we will resume the following Tuesday. Maybe the six-finger guy is just to illustrate how big he was, because he was Well, Andy's suggesting the six-finger stuff is to illustrate how big he was. I've, I personally think it's this piece of interesting Trivia. But in any event, yeah. whatever you want to make, maybe it's because he's a good guitarist, as Gary suggested. Mike? That's how the duo system started. Counting fingers. Twelve. Twelve. Okay. Well see you have the right number of fingers for it then. Okay. Anything else? Susie. In the back. We still got lots of food left. Lots of food. Help yourselves. Lots of food. For sure. Brain Health Seminar on Saturday, pick up the brochure on the table. Anything you brought, you need to take home. Because they come in here right away and start putting the room together for tomorrow. But if there are leftover flyers, you can leave those on the table. Because we'd like the folks tomorrow morning to see the flyers as well. Alright, so, would you pray with me? Gracious Lord... We come to these stories. It seems to be a world so far removed from our own, but it's not. And we have to be honest. This, this darkness that lies in our hearts and, and flourishes in the hearts of some who embrace it with seeming glee. impresses upon us our need to be rescued. Our need for a Savior. And we are thankful today, tomorrow, the next day, for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, who indeed is that rescuer, brought to us out of your love, and who through his own faithfulness, Put us right with you. Thank you. All this we pray in the great and glorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.